0: Oregon. And I am Isabel. And this is a live via Zoom Womance. What, what, what? A podcast about romance novels. Uh, about Paris. About hot jocks.
1: About... Having an awesome makeover and coming home and making that guy that you really liked and he didn't like you enough rue the day. About red herrings. About weird masquerades. About sexual assault by any name. About the culture wars.
0: About Scarlett Peckham's deepest id. But mostly that first thing. Romance novels. And Our Ourselves. ourselves and Scarlett Peck himself because she joined us for a discussion about Whitney My Love by Judith McNaught as part of the Chicago North RWA Spring Fling. Far flung Spring
1: Fling. Spring Fling was supposed to take place in April, but as you all know what happened. Something went I don't know. Something went sideways and the amazing people of the Chicago North Windy City RWA were able to put together Spring Fling via Zoom.
0: I think we say this like eight times during the recording, but thank you so much to everyone who signed up and everyone who showed up. It was great having you and hopefully we'll be able to do more stuff like this, maybe even in person one day. Who knows? Who knows? Sky's the limit. God willing and the crick don't rise. (laughs) And without further ado, let's kick off the episode.
1: Thank you so much for inviting us here, Shannon, and being so flexible and such an excellent host. I'm Isabel. I'm Morgan. We're romance. We're romance. Welcome everyone. We are so excited to be here. In case you don't already know, we are a weekly podcast about our romance novels, our moment, ourselves, and our convoluted orgasm metaphors. As romance readers, we tackle all sorts of romances on our show and try to ask the big questions.
0: Today we are joined by Scarlett Peckham, a four-time golden heart finalist and historical romance who writes steamy stories about alpha heroines. Most recently, the rake us welcome, Scarlett. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> On romances, when authors come to visit, we like to talk to them
1: about a romance novel that looms large in their lives. Before we get into that, we want to let you know that there will be a Q and A at the end of this. Please feel free to send your questions during the discussion through the chat box.
0: Yeah, today we will be discussing Judith McNaught's "Whitney, My Love," originally published in 1985. Let's read the back of the book. Under the dark, languorous eyes of Clayton Westmoreland. The Duke of Claymore, Whitney Stone grew from a saucy hoyden into a ravishingly sensual woman. Free from her triumphs in Paris society, she returned to England to win the heart of Paul, her childhood love, only to be bargained away by her bankrupt father to the <laughs> handsome, arrogant duke. Outraged, she defies her new lord, but even as his smoldering passion seduces her into a gathering storm of desire, Whitney cannot and will not relinquish her dream of perfect
2: love whoa 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 so scarlet why did you choose this book okay i feel like stefan from after like, i didn't even want to show my face <laughs> yeah yeah like, it has everything <laughs> <laughs> getting sold by your father <laughs> so i chose this book because i consider it sort of my ur er text in historical romance Mm. Mm, I know that's how I feel too I read this book I think the first time when I was 11 years old that's so
1: young to read this book
2: believe me I just want to contextualize this for you guys <laughs> the reason I read it is because I remember like the first memory I have of seeing and wanting a romance novel was my grandmother reading this particular book on a screened-in porch while like me and my seven cousins were playing in the pool and she would keep it in a cloth cover and I remember walking in and her just like laughing hysterically and ignoring us. And like, if we had drowned, it would have been no problem. But the cloth cover was hiding what she was reading. So I was like, what are you reading? And she's like, oh, it's just this trashy romance novel. But it's really funny. It's called Whitney, My Love. And I was like, hmm. And then later on, I peeked under the cover and saw this. And if you are listening on a podcast at a later time, what I'm looking at on the cover is like a hand painted picture of a vulnerable redhead young woman with just flashing green eyes a somewhat excited but scared impression which is definitely accurate to the book beneath her blown up face you've got her laying on the ground with both her breast and thighs exposed in a beautiful blue gown with a man sort of dominating her shirtless in his buckskin breeches and then on the back you have said man looking somewhat unlike the way he is described in the book which is satanic literally. And then you have Whitney and his name is Clayton, like, on the back of this white horse with just, like, flowing white mane. There's also no white horse in the book. There's some dappled greys, though. Dappled greys, for sure. Right. There's a lot of horse imagery, some really incredible horse metaphors, like, Whitney as a broken stallion, like, we can talk about that later. But (laughs) I saw this book and I was just like, whatever that thing is, I am going to get my hands on it. I couldn't steal it because she was in the middle of reading reading it, but I did Mm -hmm. crack into her, like, historical romance paperbacks that were hidden in her room, like, that my cousins and I, like, used to look at the pictures of and giggle over, because we were, like, nine, and then I started reading them and, like, really liking them, and then eventually checking out, like, 10 or 15 at the library at a time during summer break, and I eventually got my hands on Whitney, My Love, and I was like, damn, Grandma Pat knows what's up. (laughs) This book It's so funny. It's so romantic. It's like so dramatic. I love Whitney. I identify with her. Clayton is my dream man, obviously, because he's so passionate. Also really rich. Also, he loves me more than anyone else in the world because I am exceptional (laughs) and only he can see it. It was like a lot of my boxes checked as an 11-year-old sort of nerdy, frequently bullied by like guys. I was like, huh, I guess they have a crush on me because my mom says that.
0: Just hoping the
2: first chair trumpet player would notice you one day. Oh my God, right? And then he would buy me from my dad, the girl's ultimate fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) That's me looking back on the book now. But so I was obsessed with this book and I read it like at least four times, maybe way more times than that. I read it like every six months. It was like the gold standard for me of the book I was obsessed with. And I read so many books from the same era. The Johanna Lindsays and the Mm -hmm. Jude Devereaux. I was also obsessed with Catherine Coulter who writes a lot of- like rapey, you know. (laughs) Dark and stormy, brooding, uh, somewhat upsetting if you look back on them, but definitely very captivating for me as, again, an 11-year-old. And yeah, this one just really stood out, especially as I got older and I kind of stopped reading them when I was like in my high school and early 20 years. And the one that I really remembered and that like really imprinted on me was this book. It's like the book that is in my head and in my soul and in my like psyche, regardless of whether I want it to be there and regardless (laughs) of whether. <laughs> or not, I find that tremendously disturbing. So yeah, that's it. That's the question. Like, that's why I chose this book. I will say that if you haven't read it and you didn't see some of the content warnings we posted on, yes, yeah, like, this is a book that has a tremendous amount of sexual violence and also just physical violence and also emotional abuse. So if any of that is really uncomfortable for you, you might not want to watch this because we are going to get into it because it's basically like the plot of the book.
0: Also, if you have any children present, just be prepared to have some weird conversations after this. And also some conversations about how Isabeau and I have given up and that's why we can use coarse language. <laughs> um, they have their whole lives ahead of them. So I also read
1: a New York Times article that said people who swear are smarter and like I shared it with my dad when he's like I can't believe I raised a sailor. And I was like look at how smart I am, dad. Yeah, we fucking are, dad. <laughs>
2: yeah, fuck off, dad. <laughs> Screw you. Jeez, dad. Bad dads. <laughs> so
1: many of them in romance. So do we want to start with our erstwhile heroine Whitney. I think so. Yeah. All right. We've got to start with the titular Whitney. We do. I want to start with where we meet Whitney right at the beginning. She's in a barn and she's wearing britches. She's just about to turn 16. And the reason why she's wearing britches is because she's going to ride a horse standing, a thing that she's been practicing for months on end to impress Paul, this man that she's been in love with. And so like she's causing this huge scandal, but also just the idea of like this irrepressible
0: like fifteen year old girl putting on pants and like getting on the back of a horse and then riding it around. Also attempting to impress a boy with something that would never impress a boy. I loved
1: Whitney off the bat. All the people are so mean to her. It's basically like she's living in Emma's neighborhood. Like everyone talks about her behind her back. It's a very small, enclosed aristocratic community. And like, they're so mean to her. And she's just like this irrepressible tomboy whose mom died when she was very young and has a mean dad. And like, then she's whisked off to Paris. And like, that's how we meet Whitney. And I was like, ooh, what are we going to do? And things get worse from there.
0: Yeah, and so that kind of like starts this facet of the novel where it is a building's roman. And it's really interesting because Isabeau and I read and talk about a lot of contemporaries of this text on the show. And a lot of them are adventure novels, kind of. Like you're gonna go to eight different places. You're gonna spend time on a boat. And this felt really domestic compared to that. But there is this larger journey of growing up that kind of
2: anchors the first half, I would say, of the book. Yeah, well, in the context of sort of the conventions of, you know, current contemporary, the stuff that I write and that my colleagues write, the odds of being able to get away with a book where for like the first 300 pages, we're just having a coming of age story and yeah. where you don't meet the hero at all until you page need 60. You two other dudes, two other hot guys. Red herring heroes. Yes. Also like very similarly problematic and abusive figures. Indeed. But that's fine. That's what we want in this book. That's like. (laughs) that's how we measure the attractiveness of a man (laughs) but no the structure it's bizarre to me but even looking back on like contemporary romances of its time I don't recall like you're saying many that spend this much time on the heroine or hero's growth prior to the time that the romance actually starts and I kind of like it like I think that makes it a more interesting book
1: it actually reminded me of a Tessa Dare where the hero and heroine are very very young when they get married and then he like leaves to become a pirate and then we spend all of this time with her like becoming like this socialite swan and like he swoops in like seven years later right before she's about to have him declared legally dead it sort of felt like that in the sense where she has this total gut and rehaul of her outside in Paris and she becomes flirtatious and like she really learns how to play the social game in a way that she was totally naive and innocent in England before she went to Paris and like Paris is like polishing a diamond they like use that expression a couple of times for her.
0: I think you're exactly right like I love the makeover aspect of this first part of the book because it's not really like you say gutting but I don't think it's gutting so much as like polishing like the book says they really take the stuff that everyone in her small town in England sort of resented about her like her fieriness her snappiness her wittiness her intelligence and they allow it to shine for it's charms Rather than telling her Like that isn't What ladies do They're like Here's another way Of expressing yourself A fan And
2: then she feels This kinship That is so true. That fan detail really got me. I was like, yeah, you can like express yourself with the strange accessory that you bring to the party. Like (laughs) who hasn't? Right. And so like, there's more
1: than one mode, like this excessively earnest, adventuresome way that you are in England that you're constantly being like ripped up for. In Paris, it's like not gauche, it's new and fresh, but also needs to be tempered. And like that tempering isn't hard or mean, which is really nice. It's not disciplinarian. Right. It's not disciplinarian. And then she goes back to England and I was like, oh, all the nice changes are over.
0: Because in her mind, she was like, I'm going to impress
2: Paul. The Paul (laughs) plotline is so upsetting to me. I mean, the whole thing is upsetting to me, but the Paul thing, it's just like, girl, like, get your shit together. You are so much better than Paul. Oh, Her disappointment with herself and her, like, self, I don't know, flagellation after she She's gone to Paris and proved herself as this beauty and this wit and this person that there's always 20 men surrounded by. And, you know, and then she goes home and it's still like, damn it, Paul is still not paying attention to me. And all of that growth just seems to sort of fizzle away in a way that I find really like deflating. It's like, why did we even go to Paris? What was the point of that?
0: And it was so real as someone who went away to college, felt like I really came into my own, spent five minutes back in my hometown, and then the guy I was obsessed with in high school showed up at the restaurant where I was, and suddenly I was like... (laughs) (laughs) That is a great point. The first cut is the deepest. It is so true. And I was like, pick yourself up,
1: Whitney. (laughs) I think that's one of the strengths of this novel, though. Like that feeling that you've like done all this work. You've, like, got the dresses. You've got the jewels. You've got the polish. You come back and Paul says something, like, gutting to you. And, like, you're on the floor. And, like, that feeling was so real. Like, the internality of that, even as, like, the structure of whose perspective I was in was constantly really fuzzy. Because, like, I felt that as, like, almost an omniscient third rather than, like, in Whitney's perspective. And then I also saw it through her beloved Aunt Anne. And I was like, it's even worse now.
0: <laughs> like, there's an audience. Oh my God. Yeah. That kind of gets to something about the book, which is the first half hops perspectives a lot. You get a lot of different POVs. And I remember there was a chapter where her father was throwing a ball to welcome her back and to introduce her to Clayton, our actual hero hero and like, scare
2: quote. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: and it like hops from perspective to perspective. Like I thought about early science film when they were like oh my god the camera can move we've got to move it everywhere and so like every other sentence was like a different character's perspective including characters that we're never going to return to their perspective like Butler McRae. Yeah. McRae like random McRae. yeah like Butler McRae why are we in McRae's head <laughs> You know, there's something so deft about it though because I was just arrested. I was like, this feels like I'm at a party. Like I feel this
2: breathlessness of meeting new people. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think
0: about that as a writer?
2: So I know that it must've felt so compulsive to me when I read this book a million times. Like I remember feeling like so swept away. I would stay up till six in the morning. My knuckles would ache from holding the like laminated hardcover library book. So it definitely is effective. But like reading it now that I've written a bunch of romance novels, and that, you know, reading it more critically mm-hmm. to discuss it on this podcast. First of all, for any of you who are fellow writers here, like, you know, there's a, a craft thing that gets talked about a lot in author circles about head hopping and you're sort of trained not to do it. And the current sort of like mode that is preferred is to keep it to either like a first person single POV that alternates usually in contemporary or, you know, the hero and heroine or the hero and hero or whatever, like the, mm. you know, the main people in the romance were going deep POV on both of of them. So this idea that we're like kind of floating between the surface of all of these people's internality but never really diving in and not for very long is strange to me and it was really disorienting and I almost felt like the book had ADHD because we were never really in a scene. We're moving around constantly and the camera is panning and you know there are chapters mm-hmm. but the chapters don't necessarily correspond to I don't know events or like anything like anything. It's so weird. <laughs> Chapter- Oh, yeah. just, like, blocking up
1: the text. She's like, alright, I don't know where to go. 26. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
2: like, Okay, I know someone will slap Whitney. (laughs) That's (laughs) always where she goes. Whitney wants to be slapped because she feels so bad about her behavior.
0: That is so true, though. That idea of like someone slapping Whitney, like this book will have these moments of complete, like ethereal but like high energy, like frenetic feeling, and then suddenly it'll like zap onto a moment of like really intense violence.
2: Yeah, you know, it's like it's hypomanic, and then it goes into depression. Yes, it's like on the bipolar two spectrum, and I. I think this yes. book has a lot of interesting like, psychology in it, and I am not a therapist or a psychiatrist or any trained professional in this, just a person who's been to therapy a lot, and like, <laughs> yeah, I just feel like I was seeing so many strange like, therapeutic things in it, even at the level of narrative structure, that were just so strange and so compelling from a critical lens, but so odd from like both an author and a reader lens, I guess.
1: I think this is a good time to insert the fact that this is the first book that Judith McNaught wrote, but not the first one that she had published. And I wonder how much she changed this book and the manuscript between writing it and then becoming a sort of powerhouse with Paradise and her other books, and then like how much work she did to come back to this. Because in a lot of ways, I think this book is skipping and hopping head so much as you say, and that feels like an early writer move, and one that she falls away later on in her career.
0: It's not just an early writer move, but it's an early- Early like this kind of historical romance move, because remember in Shanna, we ended up in the horse's perspective a
2: couple of times. I forgot about that. God uh, about yeah.
0: That, oh God. And Shanna was like blockbuster. What's remarkable to me is that The Flame and the Flower got published from the slush pile and Judith McNaught could not get Whitney, My Love picked up for a long time until she had proven herself with two other books, which feels
2: remarkable to me. I can't quite understand why that was, because one reason why I wanted to revisit this book is because it's one that just pops up so frequently and with such mm. polarizing views, like yeah. when I put on Instagram that we were doing this, like five different people DM'd me either to be like, that is literally the worst book ever written, or saying like, I grew up with this book. I love it so much. It's the first romance I ever read. And like I totally understand both perspectives, but it's one of those books that's just so weirdly primal and indelible that people remember it and have strong opinions about it. How many years after it's written? Like 35? Mm. So something about it is incredibly powerful. You don't hear people like discussing paradise, like that anymore with that level of intensity and I don't know it's very searing but it does feel like a first novel and like when I wrote my first novel a lot of the comments that I saw people saying about it which were totally fair is like wow like there's so much weird random shit that just gets like tackled like what the child disappeared like I don't understand what's going on like why is it you know so
0: much you want to say there's no way it's not going to be your first draft (laughs) in a lot of
2: ways yeah you figure it out as you go along Long, but there's still like this kind of DNA of like the 17,000 things that you were trying to do before you figured out what you were trying to do. And I feel like this book has a lot of that in it. And I will also say that my first book, The Duke I Tempted, was not picked up for publication. Like Indy published it. It just wasn't bought on submission. I don't know exactly why. I mean, I kind of know why. Which brings us to our podcast within
0: a podcast.
2: <laughs> why publishing? I share the question many times. It's like, why do you make the choices that
1: you make? But I think to all of that, and something that we've talked about on the podcast before is like what's so dense and even lush about the early romances from the 70s and 80s is that like these authors like really let tangents sail and like sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And it's like you're throwing everything you can at the wall. And it's like you're in a horse's perspective. like You're (laughs) in Paris and like there's a Satan masquerade ball. And he's going to pretend that he's not a duke to woo you, even though he's paid your father a hundred thousand pounds for you, but he's gonna, like, woo you classy style.
0: Yeah, for some reason he wants to have a country courtship. Yeah. And uh, your whole life is going to revolve around his idea of a country courtship. Which he dropped
2: one syllable wiles. from his name to disguise himself, by the way, which is like, super brilliant move. Very uh, good tactician. Very I know, and he
0: has to have all these private conversations with people. <laughs> because, like,
1: <laughs> like, as soon as he launches the scheme to have this country courtship of Whitney that he earnestly wants, it begins to unravel. There are already three people in the neighborhood who fucking know him as Duke Westmoreland. And he's like, I'm not going to be the Duke Westmoreland. I'm going to be Clayton Westland. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that'll oh. fly. <laughs> like, I can just imagine where it's like, this is charming. It has that sort of spirit of hijinks and, like, here's a way that we can show that Clayton is more than Satan. He's, like, mischievously romantic. Mmm. Mm hmm. There's so much play there that I think the more contemporary romances, there's just like less room to sort of just like let it all hang out. It's like more modern romances. We wear Spanx now. And in the 70s and 80s, it's
0: like, no, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it. They were sewing the Spanx at that time.
2: <laughs> God, and there were all so sorts of weird pouches <laughs> and stitches. <laughs> I mean, from a pure financial perspective, like I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. a publisher being like, sure, write a 600 page historical romance novel no problem you could get away with that in indie because like you're in charge of whatever like people will buy whatever on kindle if they want it like it doesn't have to yeah. be printed but yeah no the space in this book to just like do weird shit i'm kind of jealous of it i'm like maybe i should write a 600 page weird wandering i think you should on. i think you should thanks you know I will? what okay.
0: would <laughs> romance it. would obviously read those. it <laughs> we, well the other thing is like think of the fact that after her revision in 1999 this book becomes almost Anna Karenina long (laughs) and that is in order to
2: publish it in hardcover yeah like how would you even hold it up like my hands ached reading the 1985 version I guess I had small hands because I was 11 but
0: (laughs) (laughs) but if that doesn't speak to like how wildly successful Whitney my love was I don't know what does Yeah. But Isabeau, your point earlier, I think, kind of gestures towards this idea of the hero and thinking about him in the context of other contemporary books to this. You and I had a really difficult time reading A Pirate's Love by Joanna Lindsay. But the one thing we enjoyed about it was the adventure of the heroine trying to escape this wretched hero. And there is some of that in Whitney, my love. So I found myself rooting for Whitney. I'm like, you can outsmart this guy. And at the same time, I was rooting for Clayton. Why? That's what I'm wrestling with is what about this book is able to play both sides so expertly and get so deep deep into your feelings.
1: So this is the part of the conversation where it gets tough because I think one of the things that's worth mentioning now is that Clayton purchased her. Purchased her for $100,000, strong-armed her and coerced her destitute father who's not a good person. Demanded it be kept secret so that he could have this earnest courtship.
2: I'm in a country courtship with horses and grass. We should go back to that because there's something interesting there about like, is he trying to even out the power dynamics by appearing not to be so rich? And I I don't know, but go on. He does other bad shit that we can talk about.
1: (laughs) I'm interested that that's where your mind went, Scarlett. But like, I want to start with like his rage. Like he's enraged at her all the time. And like the way that this book decides that love enacts itself for Clayton is possession and jealous rage is just the hair's breath of love. That's how we know he has this tondre for yeah. her. And it's always like he violently wants to shake her. He wants to shake her so her teeth rattle. He like takes a riding crop to her butt in a Johanna Lindsay spanking scene like out of effing nowhere when they're racing. It's like Phantom of the Opera and that you know that the Phantom is going to kill Christine but you still kind of want him to like make out with her. Mm, that. And he's so scary. I found myself just like totally appalled by everything, except he's so charming. Why can't he
2: just talk to her the whole book? Everything he says is hilarious.
0: Like, he just talk. Like, She's so funny. They're so funny together. They're so hot. Two hot, funny jocks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, Isabel, quit acting like you don't know how that word is pronounced. I know you've watched Austin Land. <laughs> Tundra.
1: I do really love Austin Land.
0: That his love enacts itself almost
1: exclusively as possession, right? Like, that he's had all of these mistresses, but he's super stoked that he's going to marry a virgin, which, whatever. So then, part of the reason why he legitimately high-key rapes her is because Margaret, her arch-nemesis, tells him that she had sex with not only the stable boy, but also Paul and Nikki are erstwhile red-herring heroes. And so So then he flies into the jealous rage of like, she's not the virgin I thought she was. And now I'm going to punish this sex pot. And the only way that I know how, which is to humiliate her and have sex with her, rape her,
0: which is after the spanking scene with a writing crop. I should With add, the writing the crap. Writing.
2: So, Whitney is not unviolent herself. Like, almost everyone in this book is incredibly violent. Like, it reminds me of an 80s action film in just how much casual violence there is between all the characters. It's that even though we're in all their heads, like, none of them are like, wow, it's weird that she just walloped that horse that he's riding with the writing clop in order to kind of try to kill him. Like, no worries. The only one who cares it, is him. Everyone is super violent and just. <laughs> Or like 80 guys get shot in the opening sequence of an action film and like it's no big deal. Like the body is literally littered with bleeding corpses and it's like totally fine. Don't worry about it. Moving on.
0: They (laughs) don't eat a cheeseburger like they don't hate the cheeseburger. (laughs) So we have this insanely
1: charming hero. He does these crazy acts of violence. His entire internality around Whitney is incredibly violent. And then the thing that I think begins to really, as a reader, trip me up is just we spend so much time in his feeling bad about what he did to Whitney. Like, he never takes responsibility for what he does for Whitney. He never takes accountability. He tells his brother in a drunken stupor what he's done. And his brother's like, oh, shit, you raped a girl. And like, he never even calls it that. Another dude has to tell him to call it that, which Mm -hmm. I think was a really
2: interesting thing in the 1985 novel he very nearly raped her in his own POV but he didn't admit to himself that he had actually raped her so he's like he knows he's on the cusp but he doesn't think
0: he's (laughs) he just keeps calling
2: it the great
1: harm that he's done he's on the (laughs) bubble
0: can I interject with some context for the revision the only scene of violence that Judith McNaught altered in 1999 was the riding crop scene. The scene of the rape remained the same. It was just that his brother, Stephen, after the fact, didn't call it rape. He said, how could he harm a woman? He said that kind of more broad, vague term. But the scene of the rape remained beat for beat, word for word. I have the two editions and I read them simultaneously, (laughs) like page by page, trying to figure out where the changes were made. And they weren't. It's only in the discussion after the fact.
2: When you say page by page, you do actually mean all like 10 to 15 pages because one of the yeah, only man. real scenes in the book which goes on and on, like have on, you guys read on. A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara like where it's it's all about like abuse and the aftermath of abuse and there's just I so that. like so many graphic scenes of like abuse and like like graphic like it's so disturbing. This book reminded me of that.
0: I started at the moment where she's grabbed from the party with that guy pretending to propose to her. And she's trying to get a like music thing started with the guys. And he comes in, sees the man kneeling before her and yanks her out of the party. And that's when I started comparing the two scenes. Thank you for
2: your service.
0: I care so much about each and every one of you that I wanted to make sure I understood the revision completely. Right. And so I think
1: both in the revision, since it isn't really a revision, let's be real. And in the original, the turn that this author has to make, right, is like you have to recover the hero because they have to end up together for the HEA. And how do you recover a hero who's done this awful, awful thing to our heroine? And he's done it really against like bad gossip, right? Like there's like that inciting incident of like bad margaret but the thing that's insane to me about it is how much time we the reader spend in his like agony and then worse we spend a lot of time in whitney being like oh i can't bring up how i was hurt because it hurts him so much to talk about it and like even when they're talking about getting married and she's like can we not have sex on our wedding night because like I think I'm malformed because it hurts so much the first time we did it and he's like sure of course we can definitely but like we're gonna figure this out you're not malformed like it's gonna be great and then he spends two and a half pages talking about what active verbal and nonverbal consent looks and feels like
0: but he never tells her anything about the fact that like the first time you have sex it hurts especially in some cases and he also never tells her like oh I raped you. (laughs) Even though he said in the scene, like, I do not
2: want this to feel
0: good. Yeah, he says that.
2: What I found really, really, really disturbing about it is when Whitney realizes that he hasn't done it out of like sexual attraction or even Mm -hmm. like anger, Mm -hmm. he's done it to humiliate her. And she feels so ashamed, like it works. It's such a a pattern in intimate partner violence where you have this sort of dialectic between the one who's been victimized and then the one who has done the violence and has the rage. And then this cycle of apology and, oh God, what did I do to you? It's just because I love you so much. And all of that stuff about possession as well. It's like, I I keep you away from your family and I control where you go and I read your text messages because I love you so much. Like, possession and and violence. It's just so accurate to, if this were a book about intimate partner violence or domestic abuse or cycles of abuse, it's all... All really well done. It's just where the book is at, like co-signing on that.
0: <laughs> yeah, like all plausible deniability is out the window because we hear like a very accurate description of what active consent should look like we also hear his perspective that it's not about sexuality it's about power we hear her understanding of that and then her internalization of it that wrenching part at the end of it where she feels wounded and she feels like she needs to be held and the only person she has and the only person she wants to be held by is him It was just very true and it was true in a four-dimensional way. It understood completely what that kind of violence is like and it depicted it accurately and then it was like general harm. It's not rape because they love each other. Specifically Judith McNaught wrote Whitney is complicit and chooses to be complicit. She is an accomplice
1: in this sex scene and like I can't for the life of me and like this is the cognitive dissonance of this book where it's like we have active consent he goes for two pages talking about what it looks like he talks about how the first rape is not about sex it's about power and like how he wanted to humiliate her he even like calls it all the way back to like one of their first kisses where he's like I was dominating you was that enjoyable for you you wanted to slap me afterwards not all kisses are like that that's not making love and for this book to understand those things so properly and then spend so much time in his agony as he like rakes himself over the coals but never makes a mea culpa to her and she's never allowed to ask for one. It made me think of this New York Times article that came out right after me too wherein they solicited responses from men across the nation asking hey do you think you ever like hurt a girl? Write to us about it and like how bad you feel and I was like why would we do this? Why would the New York Times spend this time? And it's like I think it's this cognitive dissonance where it's like we have always known that harming women in this way is incredibly damaging and terrible but we have to like somehow account or ameliorate it with bad boy feeling they feel so bad and Clayton feels so bad it's agony for him it's cutting him up inside and now like Whitney doesn't fucking get to talk about how she's been harmed because by
0: talking about it she's harming him like he's suffered enough And it's like, he never apologizes. And I think that kind of gets to the rub because you said he never, he does. He grovelingly apologizes eventually. And he continues to do that throughout the book as he does even more (laughs) horrible. We're talking about this scene. That's definitely the halfway point of the book. That's definitely a big hinge. But he is going to go on to publicly humiliate her because he believes that she had sex with someone
2: after that. Time after, like it goes on until the very, very end of the book. There's never a moment where he like, learns his lesson and he's like God I'll never do that again. He uh, always expresses uh, that he'll never do it again and then he
0: does it and she points out to him like you said you wouldn't do this and he does it but you pointed out Isabeau that she won't let herself confront him and that's exactly right and the book names that and it says like she is too prideful and her friend says you know you have to humiliate yourself in order to like rekindle this love affair that you had because it's so important to you. The fact that she cannot ask for an apology is seen as like a moral failing.
1: Yeah, it's her stubbornness.
0: Yeah, as something she has to overcome in order to be in love. Like you have to humble yourself in order to be in love. You
2: have to submit. Yeah. I do want to talk a little bit about the era in which it's written, and also the era in which McNaught made those comments about it not being rape because Whitney is complicit. Because, like, right. I was thinking about, she made those comments in 1999. She said the book was written in what 76, and then published in 78, and then published in 85. She started it in 78. So mm-hmm. Monica Lewinsky was 96, right? And that's when a young, young, young woman who is an intern to the actual president of the United States—all ages out the window when it's the president. Yeah. yeah. Great point, (laughs) Margaret. No, but, you know, and she was vilified, including by powerful women for tempting him and for, you know, being a slut and for embarrassing the nation. And that is the context that McNaught is saying, oh, what he did, you know, it borders on rape, but I made sure that Whitney was complicit in it so it wouldn't actually be rape because I wouldn't want him to rape her. And then in 1985, like, that's the year I was born. So I, I can't really speak to, like, what it was like to live there, but I know that, like my mom's friends, I remember growing up, and this still goes on today the boys will be boys thing, but just the way that it was like, yeah, men rape. Like you go on dates and they rape. Like sometimes your husband rape. Like it was just so built into the way that we think about society and the way that we think about our role as like women, our femme identifying people, like that you're vulnerable and you have to protect yourself. And that if you don't, it's your fault. It's and your the fault. book yeah. is completely saying that while also identifying the trauma of thinking that. And that's so interesting to me.
0: And I remember like the daytime talk show landscape vividly of this time in my life. I was really young, but I knew like what a bad touch was, how it happened, who I should tell about it. But nothing ever told me like, it's, you know, like not going to happen to you. It was like, this is inevitable. It's going to happen to someone, you know, like we'd reached the point where we were like, this is ubiquitous, but we weren't at the point where we're like, so let's blow up the system. Yeah, (laughs) right. When did marital rape become a crime?
1: Nineteen. 1992 was the last state New York declared it illegal so 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 1992, 1992 I was already five this book was already many years published and I think like one of the things that I was thinking about as I was thinking about this and we're gonna wrap this up so you guys can ask us some questions is like this idea of like this is the water that we swim in and what this book really highlighted for me is just that like I remember when I was in high school my mom went to book club in the afternoon and I was hanging out with my boyfriend at the time and she told the ladies that she was with that like you know her daughter's hanging out with her boyfriend isn't that so cute and another woman was like I would never ever let my son stay alone with a girl because you know what they can say And my mom came home and she's like, isn't that awful? And I was like, yeah, that's really terrible. And it's like that boy, that woman's son in my mom's book group, he was in my grade. Like, that's the stuff that he was getting at home. And now he's, you know, 32. When my mom told me that story, I wasn't surprised. You know what I mean? I was just like, Mm -hmm. yeah, women think like that. And Mm -hmm. I think like this book does such a good job of showing the scaffolding of the patriarchy and how hard harmful it is how we
0: internalize it and it's like that's just it though we have a lot more to say about this novel and I think the three of us will record a part two episode that'll come out on our podcast so please subscribe <laughs> to Womance but right now we want you guys to participate in the discussion with us so Isabel, I know some people have been sending in some questions but please feel free to send in questions now if you've been sitting on a thought or an idea and we'll get to them if we don't get to them Scarlett I think you said you would respond to them in a textual way on our blog.
2: Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Cool. I have a lot of thoughts. All right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we have so many thoughts. So I many bet thoughts. y'all do too. Even if you haven't read the book, I mean, the idea of Whitney, my love, looms large for all it of does. us in romance.
1: Heather P. asked a really great question. Does he want her to himself for himself? And I was like, yeah, he talks about that all the time. Like this idea of possession of like, I'm the
2: only. It's just like, ugh, you're so gross. Yeah, that's that's not like subtextual. That is right <laughs> on the surface. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so then
1: Carol Bell asks, what I want to know is why. Why did Judith McNaught want to write it and why people loved reading it? Why is this complicity so attractive? She doesn't just show that that's it. She makes it justifiable as it ends in an EGA.
2: I was thinking about that a lot this morning. Some people were talking about on Twitter, like Kat Sebastian and Elizabeth Kingston were both sort of talking about historical romance. And I was like, hi, I want to talk to you. Um, Why was it so romantic? Why? What was it doing for us? And I think that's something that romance novels are so good at like showing because there are so many written. They come out so fast and they're about intimacy and domesticity and our notions of love and our notions of fairness and our notions of power. And like you look at these books, which so many of them, it's not just Whitney and I love, but like they are so violent. There's so much about possession and there's so much about the domination of the heroine by the hero and then him being brought to his knees because- when she submits and then he begins to love her that's like her exacting power over him and I feel like if you're living in this society in like let's say 1985 or let's say 1999 and you're getting all of these messages and you're living in this world where rape or at least assault are inevitable and like men are just gonna do it and like that's your problem to deal with you have to stay safe and then you're also dealing with the culture wars like what does it mean to be a women's lib person versus to be like a family values person there's so much stress Stress and so much choice over that. And I think these books are kind of a way of reckoning with that stress and that tension. It's like, if we can recontextualize rape culture as romance and say that it's indicative of some sort of love, then we don't have to be so traumatized by it. And at the same time, if we consider kind of like the sexual fantasy aspect of it, like if you don't know like how to be someone in this world where you're supposed to be like Going out and getting a job, but you're also supposed to be a homemaker. But you're also supposed to be like sexually attractive to your husband, and also you're supposed to like deal with the kids and the emotional labor. Like, why wouldn't you just want to abandon yourself to the fantasy of it's not my fucking fault? Right. Like, this isn't right. about me. He is the guy, and I am just like along for the fucking ride. Like, it makes me so mad, and I completely understand why people were attracted to books like this. Like, I get really mad when people shame people for reading stuff like this and being Yeah. To me it makes a 100% sense and we're we're still doing this stuff like we're still reckoning with exactly. the political era now when we write romance novels. So that's
0: something we talk about all the time is like this idea, you know, if you look at shifter romance, you were once yeah. again getting this like really strong alpha dominating force and it is still appealing to me personally the idea of being able to like I don't have to make any choices. I mean that's like the whole hinging Seen a flea bag is her yes. confessing, like, I don't want to have to make these choices. I would like to relinquish my control. And that's still something we're reckoning with today. And I think we can say, like, Whitney, my love is a product of its time, but is it? I feel like it's a product of our current condition. Right. We've just, like, padded it with these ideas that we don't really feel as deeply as these identities that we're wrestling with through these sexual politics. So
1: Leslie asks, and then this is a question I have for you, Scarlett, too, is I'm curious to how much of The Earl I Ruined is a response to this particular novel. Like, I have a note of like where Judith McNaught says something in the first 25 pages and I was like, Earl I Ruined? <laughs> um, the reason I ask this is because so much of the era in terms of romance was about so-called women's rape fantasy, which is in fact not rape fantasy but actual ravishment fantasy, which is a huge part of what you're playing with in Earl I Ruined. And it feels in terms of this conversation, as it's almost a dialogue both an era where women were first literally claiming their sexual power, but as a first draft, and now where we've got more language and ability to express it. That
2: is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but let me start with the part about, like, how much of the early I Ruined is inspired by this book. Consciously, literally none of it. Like... <laughs> (laughs) None of it. I, in my mind, The Earl I Ruined was a retelling of Emma. I wanted to give Emma like a happier ending. Like I wanted to just be like, look how brilliant you are and how you're manifesting all this chaos because there isn't a use or purpose for your brain. Like, let's give you a fucking job, dude. So that's what was on my mind. But rereading this book, like I cannot tell you the number of times where I was like, holy shit. So yeah, Constance and The Earl I Ruined going to France to sort of like be shaped into a charming, Fashionable, confident woman, and then coming back to sort of like get not revenge, but just to sort of like show um the people who thought she was a misfit that like she's actually amazing and maybe like the best person on earth. Actually, I'm so sorry for you. Bless your heart. <laughs> like, that's obviously that was in my head from Whitney, my love. Then I was also thinking about The Duke I Tempted, which when I initially thought of that book, like the thing that was in my mind was reverse bodice ripper. Like, how do you kind of take these BDSMs? sort of power struggles that are like so key to this era of romance and then like do that same power struggle and have that same kind of aura of menace and violence and gothic weirdness but like consensually like it was just a brain puzzle for me so like I knew that sort of conceptually Whitney My Love was like sort of one of the models because of all the like old school romances of that era it's the one I know the best but what I did not know that I was doing is basically like taking beats from Whitney and Clayton's marriage and like twisting them or like putting them in a different part of the book or like like I had no that was not a deliberate choice but like there are things that happen like he finds a letter like indicating that she had a miscarriage with another man's child and in the duke I tempted there's like I can't even pronounce the word like a abortifacant a, with penny thank royal. you Isabeau <laughs> I was <laughs> oh, like, I've read The Duke I Tempted more than once. <laughs> Thank you. No, but so, you know, her husband Archer finds it when they've been married in order to produce an heir. That's like the entire point of their contract and their arranged marriage. And then he loses his mind, destroys an office, and goes to a whipping house in order to deal with his pain that he cannot voice. And like, oh. that is so right from the Whitney, My Love playbook. Like, I was yeah. not doing this intentionally. And like, you know, we have these questions of representation and romance and how important they are. And it's like yes because these books imprint on you they are part of your psyche like your subconscious is still thinking about them i like 20 years later um so yes there's definitely so i think the lord i left does not really influence this book but all three of the others are Oh, it, was there other part of the question that I forgot about? I was like, bleep. No, I think that was really good. Someone just said they love your book. Oh, <laughs> thanks, guys.
1: Your books... Your books are... Mwah. Anybody we who like, hasn't read Scarlet needs to, like, download all of the books right now.
0: Isabel and I once... Recorded a bonus episode about why we wouldn't talk about Scarlett Peckham's books. Really? I'm what? Sure we did what was this. the reason? It's because we love them too much and it <laughs> wouldn't be yeah. fun. Neither of us, yeah, I feel like it would be fun oh or, or interesting. Well,
1: like we agree on everything.
0: Like, best case scenario, we agree on everything. Worst case scenario, we reveal something we can't take back. Wow. Too personal. Yeah, well, it's very personal to write them too. Imagine how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point, Nick, the producer who didn't release that episode. <laughs>
2: I think we've got
1: time for like two more questions.
0: And if we didn't get to your question, Scarlett will do a blog post about
2: it. I will. Yep. Anything. I'm an open
0: book.
1: (laughs) This is from Kelly Smith. Is there a difference between the rape ravishment fantasy of the romance novels of the 70s, 80s and the BDSM dom sub fantasy of 2012 and the carry through to today? That's
2: a really good question as it relates to Whitney, my love. Yes, I would say yes. That is my gut instinct. What do you guys think?
0: (laughs) I think there is a difference in that. Okay, so I think there's like fantasy and that's like things just kind of happening that you think about that you would like. And they happen in the way that you would like. That's what is happening in the writing crop scene in Whitney, My Love or in any of the spanking scenes that happen in Joanna Lindsay. But I think BDSM is like, applicable. Like it's almost educational in its application. Like you see what it takes to ask for help. I think BDSM is safer than in real life in romance because you can close the book. You can take as much time with it as you like. You can ignore it. You can skip it completely. Like because of the form, you're able to kind of use those safe words, use that consent to your own benefit just by closing the book or skipping or skimming, whatever. Whereas I think in like BDSM, ESM that we see in today's romance, it's much more... What's that word for something that's educational, Isabeau? That's project is education. A pedagogy? Pedagogy. I think it's oh, much so more smart. like You guys are
2: so smart. <laughs>
0: uh, Thank you. Uh, One we thing, took the same classes.
1: We did take the same classes. One thing that <laughs> I do want to say in this like move from the 70s, 80s romances into where we are with BDSM and modern romance is like there's also a breach in terms of vocabulary and maybe even knowledge. And it's worth acknowledging that the way that we talk about BDSM, all props to Fifty Shades of Grey for introducing it into the popular zeitgeist. And romance is a popular zeitgeist. And so like it's a really good place to explore what's happening in the broader culture. And like I think it's fair to say that Judith Mc not and Johanna Lindsay may have had an inkling or may have like had a knowledge but they wouldn't have had the kind of vocabulary that we have now today yeah and I think it's worth it to say that like they did a lot of good work in bringing those things into a normalcy where it's like you know they're talking directly to women they're like you have these kind of feelings you have these kind of fantasies that's not wrong baby like it's okay and like how
0: you can safely enjoy it explore those IRL. Yeah, and I think like that's so important.
2: I think the commonality, like the common thread is just... I mean, this is kind of obvious, but, like, the desire to interrogate power dynamics in sexual Mm -hmm. intimacy and the rabid internal desire to sort of reckon with them and even them out. And, like, in BDSM, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, like, everything is negotiated. Everything is on the surface. Everyone has boundaries. Everyone has rules that they follow. And there's, I mean, Fifty Shades introducing the notion of a contract, even though it's, like, completely misused. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that is, like, a really beautiful part of kink that it's like we're going to discuss our limits and sort of what we want to get out of this and then someone is like consensually going to be like the dominant party and someone is consensually like going to submit and if we're uncomfortable we stop whereas you have that same desire to sort of rebalance power dynamics in some of the earlier romances but it's like again like you said it lacks that vocabulary but it also lacks kind of the understanding I think that that's what's going on whereas kink like makes that experience extraordinarily explicit and so books about kink are just like written from our modern era where we're coming from a perspective where we know about like munches you know <laughs> like, Yeah. it's not like you can google anything on the internet like it's so much easier now to sort of find the language I think for this stuff and to think it through because we're all talking to each other and we all have this same kind mm. of you know
0: I might put like a little bit of pressure on that though because especially in the context of Whitney my love we get Whitney's internal thoughts and thinking through of the the pleasurable experience of being spanked and she talks about the fact that she had never been taken to task before and it does kind of speak to this like patriarchal idea of discipline and growth and education and pedagogy but I think there is that kind of reckoning with why do I like this Okay, you might be right. That does happen in that specific scene. Yeah. Not so much in any Joanna Lindsay, which every (laughs) single book has a scene of spanking. If you want an
1: out-of-the-pocket spanking scene, Joanna Lindsay's your girl. We're over times. Yes, we want to be respectful. So the one last important question, womance or a nomance?
0: I can't possibly answer this. Can we answer this on part two? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I still have so much to talk about. We have so much to talk about.
1: We have so much to get through. Our sexiest part, our weirdest part. All of it's the weirdest
2: part. You guys should say, though, in the chat, if you think it's a romance or romance, because I'm very yeah. curious to see sort of what the over under is on that.
0: And thank you guys so much for joining us for this discussion. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Such a pleasure. I am so delighted to talk to you guys about this book.
0: God, people are really smart.
2: I know, right?
0: <laughs> it <been laughs> insightful. All right. Thanks,
2: everyone. This was such a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Whoa, golly gee, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau, that's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzak. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best.
1: If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect <laughs> with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at underscore. Mans- woe on Twitter, Womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com.
0: You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcasts. Until next week.